let's return together to Leviticus chapter 24. We're going to be looking at the remainder of the chapter. We looked at verses 1 through 9 last week. You'll remember these were the instructions pertaining to the lamp and the bread in the sanctuary, in the tabernacle. And we said that one of the messages that the Lord was sending to His people Israel through the provision of the oil for the lamp to ever burn and for the bread to ever be there before the Lord was to say to them that the lights were on and the food was on the table and the Lord was providing for His people so that they could come and fellowship with Him. Now Leviticus as a whole, we've said, is intended to emphasize the holiness of God. And His holiness has been emphasized in a variety of ways. We have seen His holiness through the annual festivals that He has appointed for His people, through the regulations concerning the priesthood and the sacrifices, and on and on and on. And even as all of these commands are given in in regard to the necessity of holiness on the part of the nation and on the part of individual Israelites, we find that those instructions are a means to an end. We find the commands regarding the holiness of the people are intended to leave us with an understanding of the holiness of God Himself. The passage we're going to be looking at this morning accentuates the holiness of God, not so much through ceremonial instruction as we've seen the holiness of God exalted over and over again in this book, but through a story and the moral instructions which follow from it. So let me read through this passage with you and then we'll talk about it for a while. Beginning with verse 10 of Leviticus chapter 24. We read this, Now the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian went out among the sons of Israel, and the Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel struggled with each other in the camp. The son of the Israelite woman blasphemed the name and cursed. So they brought him to Moses. Now his mother's name was Shilamith, the daughter of Dibri, of the tribe of Dan. They put him in custody so that the command of the Lord might be made clear to them. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the one who has cursed outside the camp, and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good, life for life. If a man injures his neighbor just as he had done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, 
Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus the one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as for the native, for I am the Lord your God. Then Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp and stoned him with stones. Thus the sons of Israel did, just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Father, bless your word to us today. And bless us through your word. This we ask in the name of Christ for his glory, for our good. Amen. I was talking with a brother this week about the inadequate ways in which the Old Testament is often taught. As we spoke about the necessity of seeing the Old Testament in the light of the New Testament, which is just another way of saying when we come to the Old Testament, we need to find Jesus there. Jesus is, as he said, everywhere in the Old Testament. Unfortunately, quite often teachers and preachers forget that Jesus is the point of the Old Testament, and they neglect to find him there. And when that happens, we're left with usually one, or one of two things. First, it may be that the Old Testament is largely neglected altogether, as was the case in regard to one pastor that I'm aware of who was called to serve at a church and on his first official Sunday in the pulpit, he got into the pulpit he, and he announced to the congregation of that church that they would never hear him preach from the Old Testament. Because the Old Testament was for Israel, and the New Testament is for the church. I'm sure the apostles would have been interested in hearing that perspective, given that all of the New Testament preaching is based on the Old Testament. The other thing that happens, and this is perhaps more common, is that the Old Testament is treated as source material for moral lessons. We'll find a good, exciting story in the Old Testament, and then we'll ask, well, that was interesting. What's the moral of the story? And the Old Testament Scripture ends up being utilized very much in the same way we would tell a fairy tale. At the same time, we do recognize the obvious, which is that even as we come to understand that the Old Testament points to Jesus, there are moral applications to be made. And quite often, those applications are built right into the text, as is the case with our passage this morning. Let me just point out three parts to this passage so you know where we're going. Verses 10 through 12 tell the story. Everything else flows out of this story. It's not nearly as familiar a story as Nadab and Abihu, which we studied earlier in Leviticus. It's not nearly as familiar as the golden calf in the book of Exodus, perhaps, but it is a very similar story to those two. And it comes in a very similar context. 
as the context of those other stories. And so in verses 10 through 12, we see this story, and it's a very sad story. Then in verses 13 through 22, we see the second part of this passage, and in this part of the chapter, we see the word of the Lord coming to Moses with a view of being passed on to the people of God, as we've seen so often over and over and over. We talked about this last week. God speaks to Moses, and Moses then communicates the message to the people. In this passage, the Lord tells Moses what is to be done in the case of one who has, as the text says, blasphemed the name. Now, of course, we know there's only one name it can be talking about. It's the Lord's name. And he, the Lord proceeds to speak to Moses about the laws of holiness in the land of his people, in the place where his people dwell, and we will look at that in some detail. So we see the story first in verses 10 through 12, and then secondly, we see the word of the Lord to Moses, and Moses is to pass that on to his people in verses 13 through 22. And then finally, in verse 23, we see the response of the people to God's command and to this situation which has been described in the story. Those are the three parts of the passage that we're going to look at this morning. It is a difficult passage. It's a passage that speaks of the, the famous lex talionis, the law of retribution, the law of retaliation, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And of course, when we read that, there are obvious questions that immediately arise from what we find here. In the light of what we read here in Leviticus 24, what are we to do with Jesus' teaching in the New Testament? To turn the other cheek, for instance. How do we reconcile this with that command? What do we do in regard to the death penalty for blasphemy? How does that work today? Well, as I said, there are obvious questions that arise from this text. Whether we have answers for them is yet to be seen. So let's look at this passage in each of these three parts, and in doing so, we'll at least attempt to begin to address the most significant points that it raises. Let's begin with the story there in verses 10 through 12. The story begins by introducing a man described as being half Israelite and half Egyptian. Only his mother is specifically identified. The man is identified, more specifically, of being from the tribe of Dan on his mother's side. You see that in verse 11. This man gets into a fight with another man described only as a man of Israel. So we're assuming full-blooded Israelite. In the course of the fight, the half-Egyptian, half-Israelite man utters a blasphemy. He blasphemes the name of the one true God, the God of Israel, in direct violation of the law given by God in the Ten Commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. This is a violation not only of the Decalogue, but also of other laws that have 
already been explicitly given to Israel. God has done this in the very context of explaining to his people, his priests, and all who will bring sacrifices to him that he will be treated as holy. That's the backdrop of the blasphemy. Needless to say, one cannot treat God as holy while blaspheming his name. This passage is in that way, just like the story of the golden calf. In the context of that story, what did God teach Israel? He teaches them and us that he is the only God and he is the only one to be worshipped and that he is to be worshipped only in the way which he prescribes only in the way that he says he is to be worshipped. And what do the people of Israel do just as God is teaching them that fundamental truth? They worship another God according to their own devices in direct violation of God's clear command that they had heard with their own ears. And what does God do? He brings judgment. We saw this again in Leviticus chapter 10 where God was telling the priests what they were never to do in the Holy of Holies and in the tabernacle. They were never to do anything that he had not instructed them to do, nor were they to neglect anything that he had instructed them to do. In other words, no ad-living at the tabernacle. And in that very context, the sons of Aaron do something God had not commanded. They offered unapproved, unauthorized, strange fire on the altar of the Lord. And what does God do? God brings judgment. What's the point of both of those passages? God is not to be trifled with. Our God is dangerous. And the irony of that truth is this. If you do not understand that God is dangerous, then you cannot understand His grace. We're seeing both of those things in this passage this morning. Though we read this so as we read this, this story, our focus is inevitably on the judgment of God falling upon this young man who blasphemed his name. But what God, Moses wants us to see is that this dangerous God is a God of grace because even though this sin was going on in the camp of Israel, God in his mercy continued to give the law to his people. He was still providing his revelation to his people, still communicating his way of redemption to his people. We spoke of this Thursday morning in regard to the consequences of David's sin with Bathsheba. David had greatly sinned, of course, and there would be terrible consequences. Nevertheless, the very first words of 2 Samuel chapter 12 are these. Then the Lord sent Nathan to David. 
And in those words, we see grace. God has not turned his back on David. God has not, as he had done with Saul, removed his spirit from David. Yes, there would be consequences, but God would forgive and God would restore. And similarly, flowing out of this story here in Leviticus 24, we're going to see great sin and flowing out of that great sin an even greater grace. And if you're sitting here this morning and you have come to understand your own sin and that Jesus is the Savior from that sin, and if by faith alone you have come to know the forgiveness of grace through Jesus Christ, then you too have experienced exactly what we're talking about. No matter how great your sin may have been, the grace of God was greater. The grace of God overcomes our sin. The grace of God forgives our sin. The grace of God cast it as far as the east is from the west. And the grace of God promises that our sin will not stand between He and us. Because what does stand between God and His people is Jesus, our substitute. God does indeed bring judgment against this blasphemer, yet the magnitude of His grace is also made clear with what follows. God is not to be trifled with. He is to be treated as holy. This is true, but that's only the first part. The sinful deed of this young man simply serves to highlight the truth which has been highlighted throughout the ritual laws of Israel, but it also sets the stage for what follows. Now, I want you to notice that this young man does not become the victim of vigilante justice in Israel. And this is where we begin to approach an answer to those questions that are raised by this passage. You know, if, we, if, if you've been told as you read this passage that this man is half Egyptian and half Israelite, and then you also read that, by the way, his mother was from Dan, that might mean nothing to you. It's probably the case for most of us. Because most of us don't know our Old Testament as well as we ought to. But there is something going on here. You might remember that in Israel's history, the tribe of Dan was involved in idol worship, in false worship, in the wor worship of other gods. They had gone after another god, and Dan is called out specifically among all of the other tribes, although the other tribes also did this, Dan is called out for special attention in this regard. And so we need to hear the echo of that history of Dan in this story. The intimation is that not only was this young man the son of an Egyptian who perhaps had not properly pointed him towards worshiping the one true God, but perhaps his mother had not been faithful 
in accomplishing that task either. Even so, the children of Israel do not inflict vigilante justice upon this man. They set him aside and they wait to see what God will tell them to do. What should this tell us? It should tell us that the death penalty, as God established it, is not the act of a mob. It is not vigilantism. It is the result of the penalty appointed by the wise, holy, just, and righteous God of heaven and earth. This is the wise and considered judgment of Almighty God. Imagine with me, if you will, you're informed about some hypothetical legal proceeding. There's a trial of some kind, and the defendant is found guilty. And just hearing the story of the trial and then of the sentence handed down, the sentence strikes you as unduly harsh. But then you discover who the judge is. And it just so happens that you have a personal acquaintance with this judge. And you know that judge to be a man of exceptional character, who respects the law, who always strives to do what is right and to make correct legal decisions. You know him to be a judge whose rulings always seek to balance mercy and justice. You would probably conclude that if the judge thought that was the right penalty, then you're going to trust his judgment on that. I know the character of the man. And so I'm going to let that inform my opinion of the decision. Well, in this case, when we wonder, I don't know, Lord, that seems like a stiff penalty. We need to remember the character of the judge. And we need to remember that our God does all things well. And that all he does is right. So there's the story. The young man goes out. He blasphemes the name of God. He violates the direct and clear command of God. He curses the name of God inside the camp. And he is put into custody to see what the Lord might have done with him. In verses 13 through 22 then, the Lord comes to Moses with his instructions. We read in verses 13 and 14, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, bring the one who has cursed outside the camp. So he cursed, he blasphemed inside the camp, but for the sentence to be carried out, that's going to be done outside the camp. Bring the one who is cursed outside the camp and let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. Then let all the congregation stone him. Now let's just walk through this. There are a number of things I want you to see as we make our way through this larger passage. First of all, note in verses 13 through 16, God makes it clear that blaspheming the name requires death. 
Bring the one who is cursed outside the camp. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head. They are witnesses. This is essentially eyewitnesses testifying that, yes, this man did that. You'll remember, as we go through the law, one of the things we see is how these kinds of things are to be conducted, and that if there is an accusation against someone, there must be two or three witnesses. That's what this is. Let all who heard him lay their hands on his head, then let the congregation stone him. You shall speak to the sons of Israel, saying, If anyone curses his God, then he will bear his sin. Moreover, the one who blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the alien as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. Reviling or cursing or blaspheming the name of God is to heap scorn and derision on the God who made you. And in the case of Israel, the God who brought them out of captivity and created of them a nation. God, therefore, says, if you're do- going to do that, the penalty is death. That's why God appointed such a harsh penalty all the way back in the garden. In the day you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. And people who are not in submission to the Lord of the universe come and they read that and say, well, that doesn't seem right at all. I don't think I agree with that. You're going to put someone to death because they eat a piece of fruit? That's not fair, that's not just, and what they fail to understand because they do not know the Lord of the universe is that to disobey God in that way has nothing to do with fruit. It has to do with what you think of God. To take of the fruit of the tree that God had commanded not to be taken was to revile the name of the Lord who made Adam and Eve. One theologian rightly has said that when they took that fruit, they broke every commandment. Every one of the Ten Commandments was broken in the taking of that piece of fruit. So here, God is assigning the penalty of death for blasphemy because it is an offense against Him personally. Secondly, look at the end of verse 16 again. The alien, as well as the native, when he blasphemes the name, shall be put to death. God is making it clear that the same punishment regarding blasphemy is to be meted out both to aliens and natives in the land. In other words, if a full-blooded Israelite blasphemed, he would meet the same penalty. If someone who is not an Israelite at all blasphemes, they will meet the same penalty. And we're being reminded here, of course, that God is not some kind of provincial God. God is not just the God of Israel. God is the God of the universe. Everything and everyone belongs to Him. Everything and everyone stands under Him. Every individual is under obligation 
to serve and worship the one Creator God. Notice too in verse 17, if a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. God goes on to make a general command relating to immoral killing. The death penalty is to be applied in the case of a person who wrongly kills another human being. This principle has already been set forth in the book of Genesis. It was reiterated in the book of Exodus. And now here again, it is recounted in Leviticus. Now we've dealt with this before, haven't we? If one were to come to this verse in isolation, one might think that it is an absolute and universal command. The one who takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. But what am I always encouraging us to do? Read in context. In this case, the context is found in the same verse. Because what does the rest of the verse say? If any man takes the life of any human being, he shall what? Be put to death. Well, clearly then, not all killing is illegitimate, immoral killing. Because in the same verse, there is a command to put certain people to death. Well, if the first half of the verse is an absolute and universal command, how exactly does one carry out the second half of the verse? That would be a trick. We saw this back in our study of Exodus. If one is reading the King James Version, for example, and they come to the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, they will read, Thou shalt not kill. Now, the language there actually means, Thou shalt not murder. But if you don't know that, then you might think the command is absolute and universal. But if you keep reading, then in just another minute or two, you'll come to Exodus chapter 21, verse 12, which says, He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. So even with a less precise translation, the context tells us that the command not to kill is not absolute and universal, but it has specifically to do with murder. I want you to see this as well as we move down into verse 18. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good, life for life. So there is a different penalty for taking the life of an animal than there is for taking the life of a human being. There is to be a proportionate response. And the point that we are to gather from this is very clear and it should be very obvious. The life of a human being is more valuable than the life of an animal. So if a person has been deprived of an animal... It does not call upon the system of justice to mete out the death penalty, but instead to make sure that the person is made whole again, that restitution is done for the wrong that has been done against that person and his livelihood. Remember, we're in an agricultural context here. If you take someone's animal or you 
cause someone's animal to die, you're affecting their livelihood. We're not talking about pets. And so we're seeing a very clear distinction being made between the value of a man, the value of a woman, the value of any human being, and the value of an animal. And that is a distinction which many in our society have lost. Many in our culture don't understand this anymore, but we as the people of God need to. God has made a distinction between humanity and the animal kingdom. It was the animals who were paraded before Adam, not Adam paraded before the animals. It is man who is charged with the stewardship of the animal kingdom, not the other way around. It is man who is created in the image of God, not animals. And fifthly, notice in verses 19 to 20, we come to the lex talionis, the law of retribution, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. If a man injures his neighbor just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted upon him. Now, very often you will find this law referenced. And the way you hear this law explained quite often is that this is a law allowing for disproportionate vengeance. And nothing could be more wrong. In fact, that is precisely the opposite of the purpose of this law. Every time this phrase is used, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it's God's way of saying that disproportionate punishment is a violation of His will. God is declaring here that the punishment which is meted out for any given crime must in fact be proportionate to the crime. What was happening here, of course, is that all of the nations around Israel were not abiding by that principle. The nations around Israel, the, all of the, the pagan nations of the land engaged in disproportionate punishment. And God was putting the brakes on that. This was another way that Israel was to be seen as different from the nations around them. Now understand that as we talk about the, these things, we're speaking metaphorically. And by that I mean that I, eyes and teeth are being used to communicate a principle which is more widely applicable. You cannot take someone's eye who has cost someone else a tooth because an eye is more valuable than a tooth. Nor can you take someone's tooth if that person has cost someone else an eye because a tooth is not as valuable as an eye. If someone has committed a crime that has cost someone an eye, then the punishment should be equivalent, proportionate. Eye for an eye, not eye for a tooth, and not tooth for an eye, but an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. There shall be punishment proportionate to the crime. This is a law not meant to incite vengeance, but to avoid vengeance. God wasn't encouraging 
that which the nations around Israel were doing. He was putting checks on it by demanding proportional punishment, suitable punishment, fit to the crime. This is another way, as we said, that Israel is to stand apart from the nations. And then again, God comes back in verse 21 and says a sixth thing. This is why there must be a distinction between human and animal killing because of this principle of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Thus the one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. Just reiterating this truth that a human is more valuable than an animal, and so there must be a distinction in the punishment relating to either humans or animals. Again, proportion. Finally, notice in verse 22, we read this, There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. Justice for all. In Israel, both the stranger and the alien is to be treated under the same rubric of law. So here God announces justice. One standard. Not a different standard dependent upon who you are. Not a different standard dependent upon who the judge happens to be that day. One standard always, everywhere, within God's nation. Now again, what are we to do with this passage? When in the New Testament, Jesus says to turn the other cheek, is he overturning this? And the answer is no. The principle of appropriate punishment for a particular crime continues on in the New addresses, you know, what Jesus addresses in his Sermon on the Mount is the wrong use of this particular command. The use of this command to perpetuate vengeance when it was designed to stop it. Remember what we said about context. What we have here in Leviticus 24 are God's instructions concerning civil law. It is intended to forestall personal vengeance. I don't have to go out and hunt down the guy who killed my cousin because the law of God will be carried out by the nation, not by me personally. When Jesus, however, speaks of turning the other cheek, it's a different context entirely. Jesus is speaking of a personal affront. He's speaking of an insult, not an assault. So on a personal basis, we are to forgive, but society cannot function on that basis. And so we make a distinction between the civil law and my personal response. Years ago, when I was a much younger man, I was out running one evening. It was after dark, and I was just down the street from our house when I noticed something strange. There was a car driving toward me, and as it approached, it shut off all its lights. Didn't really have time to register what this was all about. As the car passed by, 
I felt a searing pain hit my shoulder. I still didn't know what it was, but when I reached home, there were a series of marks on my body that um, looked like those that could be left from BB guns. I got on the phone, and I called the police, and they came over, and they took a report, and I never heard anything about it again. Now, why did I file a police report? Why didn't I just say, you know, the Lord says to turn the other cheek. I think I'll go look for them, and if I find them, I'll let them shoot me again. <laughs> the answer is the difference between the civil and the personal. If the people that did that, to me, right, if they did it to me, they'd probably go and do it to other people. In fact, that may be how they were spending their evening, for all I know. And I have a responsibility to the community. But that's only the first part. As far as I know, they were never identified. But what if they had been? What if they were found and arrested, tried and put in jail? That's when turning the other cheek comes into play. That's when I would go to visit them in jail. That's when I would personally forgive them and offer them the forgiveness of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, there's a difference between civil matters and personal matters. And that's the difference between an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth and turning the other cheek. Context is everything. Well, we got one last section, verse 23. Finish out the chapter together. Then Moses spoke to the sons of Israel, and they brought the one who had cursed outside the camp and stoned him with stones. Then the sons of Israel, thus the sons of Israel, did just as the Lord had commanded Moses. Moses speaks to the sons of Israel, and they bring the one who has blasphemed outside the camp, and they execute the punishment. No gas chambers, no electric chairs, no lethal injections, up close and personal. So we see the story or the illustration of God's holiness in verses 10 through 12, and we see the word of God to Moses and the people in verses 13 through 22. And now finally, we see the discipline which the Lord had appointed, carried out by the people of God in response to his command. And I want to pause with you here for just a moment as we close and say this. Do you remember what it was that Jesus was accused of by the elders of the people which landed him before the high priests and got him the conviction which led to the cross. In the Jewish context, he was accused of blasphemy. But of course, the irony is that the ones who were the real blasphemers were the ones who were accusing the Son of God of blasphemy. And yet it was the Son of God who went to the cross and died. 
Why? Because blasphemy deserves death, and he was dying for blasphemers. Because whatever command we break, we revile the name of God. And that is why, though this passage does indeed highlight the holiness and the judgment of God, it all the more highlights His grace, who gave His Son for blasphemers like you and me. Father, thank You for Your grace. Your grace which overcomes the greatest of sin. We are thank you, th thankful, Father, for Your Son who went to the cross and died in the place of blasphemers. And as a result, Father, even the sin of blasphemy can be forgiven. And we can be reconciled to You. And instead of those who once blasphemed Your name, we can be called the children of God. We thank You for it, Father. And we thank You for it in the name of the One who died in our place. Amen.